0: You're listening to TIP.
1: And so if you find a stock where their earnings revisions are rising and the price momentum is positive and the valuation is maybe on the lower end of its historical range, then that's a favorable setup. That means that investors haven't already kind of assumed that the estimates will rise and price it all in and that you can buy it at a reasonable price.
0: On today's episode, I chat with Sam Burns, who is the chief strategist at Mill Street Research. Sam has more than 20 years of experience as a market strategist providing U.S. and global investment insights at different Wall Street firms. During this episode, Sam shares his market outlook for 2023 and explains why the market has held up so far this year despite the widespread pessimism about the economy, inflation concerns, and earnings being downgraded negatively by analysts as of this first quarter. He also covers which sectors have seen the largest positive and negative revisions in their earnings from analysts and how Sam is using this information in his own investment strategy and so much more. If you've been wondering why the market has been performing so strong this year, despite the negative economic news that has been coming out, then you're going to want to tune into this episode as Sam breaks down everything for us and gives us his short-term market outlook for the rest of the year, as well as his long-term thinking. On top of that, I really enjoyed learning about his investment process and his strategy that combines a top-down approach that starts with looking at which sectors analysts have upgraded the most and then incorporates bottom-up analysis where he then goes in and looks at valuations of companies within this pool to arrive at his stock picks. So without further delay, I really hope you enjoyed today's episode with Sam Burns. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Rebecca Hotsko, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Hotsko. And on today's episode, I am joined by Sam Burns. Welcome to the show, Sam.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Thank you so much for coming on. I've been really looking forward to this conversation to get your outlook on what's happening because coming into 2023, it seemed like the biggest risks that we're facing the market were surrounding earnings downgrades that were not yet embedded in prices, inflation being sticky and the Fed's ability to get us back to this 2% target on time. And so What's been really interesting to me is that the main narrative just a few months ago seemed to be that the first half of the year was going to be bad, and then the later half would likely be a rally or get better, but we haven't seen this play out this way so far at all. In fact, the market has done quite well for the first part of the year, so I wanted to get your thoughts on what's happening and your current outlook for the market as it seems like things just haven't turned out as bad as some initially expected.
1: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. That a lot of what you know, you saw looking at the news, and, and what I was you know hearing even from clients uh, late last year was pretty negative. They thought you know it was a bad year last year, and was going to basically keep going and be a bad first half of this year. The economy was slowing rapidly due to the Fed, and that earnings were going to fall off a cliff, and that the market would fall you know to much lower lows, and that that was kind of the picture, of the setup, you know, going into you know from October, November, and in December. And I think, you know, what's happened is that partly the economic data has been so volatile that it's hard to get a clear read on what's going on nowadays. And a lot of people were kind of looking at some of the, you know, slightly slower data last year and say, and extrapolating that kind of overly in a negative way into the first half of this year, and also probably extrapolating from, you know, seeing the Fed hike rates so aggressively, well, that must gonna kind of be, you know, crash the economy any day now. And so I think what's happened is that the economy has actually been holding up better than people expected. It's not fantastic, but it's, it's you know, holding up fairly well. And I think that's a difference from past cycles to some degree, but also the, just the fact that the data, you know, in January was much stronger than the data in, you know, November, December. And some of that is just, like I say, the volatility of the data, seasonal things, COVID's impact, a lot of things going on that that confuse people and make the data harder to read. And I think a lot of people assume that they don't fight the Fed mentality, that if the Fed is raising rates, then stocks go down and that's all. And it's not really historically been true uh, at this phase and is not true now, I think. In part because you know, fiscal policy is kind of acting as a countervailing force. And a lot of what's been going on in the last two, or three years has been very unusual and not a typical economic cycle. And so it's hard to apply the usual rules of an economic cycle to this scenario that we've been seeing the last year or two. And so I think that's part of what we're seeing now. And so when everyone gets very, very negative about anything, you know, more likely than not, any piece of good news will turn things and you get, you know, kind of an uplift. And that's what we see in the markets certainly in the first, you know, six weeks of the year they just things were too negative. And if things are less bad than expected, that's all you need to get a rally. And that's what we've gotten.
0: Okay. Yeah. Let's break this down a little bit more. The economic data and then the financial data, we'll get into the earnings estimates and the revisions a little bit later in the discussion, but on economic data. So you mentioned it's been volatile and the most recent data that came out today as we're recording it on March 10th is the jobs report. And so can you talk a little bit what we're seeing there and why this good news is actually bad news?
1: Right, right. And we definitely have been in that that situation in the last few months where any signs of better than expected economic news is interpreted negatively by the markets because that assumes that means the Fed has to keep raising rates even more aggressively and for longer than would otherwise have been the case. And that that's the risk that investors are really focused on is, is the Fed, you know, going to over tighten policy? Are they going to go too far and cause a recession rather than simply responding to, you know, inflation? And, uh, so that's kind of the situation we've been in. But I think today's, you know, economic data from the jobs report was maybe one of those kind of confusing ones where the headline data, the, the you know, 311,000 jobs created was above the consensus expectations from economists. So it looks like another you know better than expected, stronger than expected report, and therefore a reason for the Fed to keep raising rates. But then if you look at the other pieces of the data, the unemployment rate actually rose to 3.6% from 3.4, and the average hourly wages that they tracked were slower than before, only up 0.2%. And the average hour, number of hours worked in a week ticked down and the labor force participation rate rose slightly to its highest level, I think, in three years. So all those measures that are below the headline actually suggest that the labor market is maybe a little less tight and the wages aren't growing as fast and that maybe things are not as, you know, uh, worrisome from an inflation standpoint as you might have thought. So, you know, if you're looking for bad news, you could find it. If you're looking for good news, you could find it in there too. And so the debate is now, well, how will the Fed interpret this? And will they use it as a reason to raise rates, say, you know, 50 basis points in a couple of weeks when they meet again, or stick to a 25 basis point hike? My view is probably that the 25 basis point hike kind of that case got a little bit better today. And so I think that's probably what they'll do. But that's really the way the market's been trading is just betting on how the Fed will look at the data as opposed to the data itself. This data by itself would be you know, pretty good. Job market's pretty strong. Most people still have jobs, still growing, just not as fast as before. And that's really what you want. You don't want things to be overheating, but you don't want them to stop you know, or go into recession. And so if you're just looking at it from an economic standpoint, yeah, pretty good, not bad. And that's why I think stocks have kind of been able to hold up Whereas the bond market has been much more concerned because they're more directly tied to what the Fed is going to do. And so that's kind of what they've been responding to. Now, today, of course, the market reactions have been kind of skewed by what's been going on in the banking sector and uh, you know, some of the tech-related banks that are blowing up and things. But overall, it's been you know, driven by Fed perceptions, and that's the lens that they're looking at the economic data form.
0: And I guess I just want to ask you then, the way things are heading right now, do you think that this suggests we could see higher highs by the end of the year? And I guess, have we already seen a market bottom then in your view?
1: Yeah, my guess is that the bottom last year in October and the major indexes in the US was probably hold. We probably won't go below those levels, would be my my guess. The indicators that I use uh, to kind of, you know, look at you know how bullish or bearish I want to be on stocks, which I kind of you know constantly update on a rolling basis, looking ahead, say one to three months at a time, are still positive. They look like they're, you know, the things got very negative last year and they're still kind of in the process of of turning up. Certainly in terms of investor sentiment and in terms of the price behavior. But also the outlook for the fed they were much closer to the end of the fed's tightening cycle than the beginning uh whether it's you know two more hikes or three or whatever it turns out to be it's, it's much less now than it would have been you know a year ago so my indicator suggests that we should at least be able to hold steady maybe in a trading range or grind higher over the course of the you know next few months and so i don't know if we'll hit a new high in our indexes but should at least hold up and i think stocks will probably outperform bonds over the as they have been for a while but we'll continue to do so over the next, you know, a few months at least. So I'm still, you know, a little more glass half full than probably some of my colleagues out there who do. This sort of thing and think the stocks should still outperform bonds and can probably hold up okay and grind higher, unless there's another big shock of some kind. You know, whether you know we got through COVID and we got through Russia and China. You know, if there's something else comes along, then I guess that would change things. But right now, it looks like earnings are going to be okay. The Fed is probably gonna, you know, hike rates a couple more times and then be done. And then inflation will be lower, you know, six months from now or nine months from now than it is now. And so that that will be a, a supportive backdrop for equities.
0: So from the conversations that I had a few months ago with a range of people, it seemed like A lot of people were expecting the market to fall by 20 to 30 percent based on the fact that earnings needed to be revised down now we have seen earnings revised down but we haven't seen that drop in the market and so is that just a factor that it was less negative than expected
1: right exactly i mean most of the impact of earnings and, and estimates and things like that is really how it relates to expectations and is it better or worse not really is it up or down in absolute terms and so certainly, yeah, earnings in you know the first in the fourth quarter and eventually even in the first quarter will be you know lower than they were a year ago, and you know got revised down. But to some degree, that's to be that was expected, and the actual results uh, turned out to be not as bad, and the guidance from companies about you know the next few quarters was not as bad as a lot of people who had been anticipating. You know late last year they're very much a you know a question of relative to expectations if expectations are very low it doesn't take much in the way of you know good news or even sort of less bad news to boost things and the reverse is true if things expectations are very high so we've seen a lot of estimate cuts. You know, analysts reduced their forecasts pretty aggressively for months and months and months all last year, and, and even kind of early this year. And that kind of has now priced in to some degree some of that negativity. And yeah, there, there are people that are arguing for you know more that there's still not going to have them cut enough, and that there's still more downside to it. And I suppose that's possible. But we're getting closer to the point where analysts will probably cut enough, or at least the pace of their cuts has far enough. And so if they cut a little bit more, but it's at a less intense pace, again, they're moving in the right direction rather than the wrong direction. And that's what we've been seeing recently. My data is showing that they're not cutting as much as they were before. And therefore, that sort of headwind to the market has been reduced.
0: Okay, I want to get into your data and research in a second. I just have one more question about the economy, which is on the yield curve, because this is one thing I can't wrap my head around. What's going on with this? We've seen it increase even further, the 210. It's become even deeply inverted, even more deeply inverted. So what's going on here and what's this telling us?
1: Yeah, that's definitely been getting a lot of attention. Uh, it's you know, historically inverted between the, the ten-year and the two-year, back to the early nineteen eighties. I think is the last time we saw something like this, and I think it's you know partly a result of the wide gap between what the market expects from inflation going forward over the next year or two, say, and what the Fed is looking at in terms of you know trailing inflation or current inflation and how they think they have to respond to it, both in terms of uh, having rates be in line with what they think inflation is now and relative to the fact. That maybe they were a little late raising rates, you know, last year when inflation had already started to rise. So I think there's the, F- the assumption that the Fed is having to sort of catch up where they should be, and that that means the short end, the the short-term interest rates, the two-year has to be high, but that that's going to slow the economy inflation will probably be coming down naturally and come down maybe faster now that the fed is so tight and therefore the rates will say in a year or two be lower than they are now and so that it doesn't make sense to price long-term bonds you know up at five percent or more if you're pretty sure that Short-term rates will not be that high in a year or two. And so it's a relatively unusual scenario right now that the, the market is looking ahead and pricing in what they think the Fed will do. And the Fed is still kind of talking like it's going to stay you know, where it is for quite a while. Now, you know, the bond market has been wrong before and the Fed has been wrong before so you, you have to assume that this is these all things will all change as things develop but i think that's kind of what's driving things right now and the fact that we have high inflation really for the first time in 40 years is you kind of confused people to some degree and has made people question what the fed's real policy you know parameters are you know they've been trying to get inflation to go up for a long time and now they've got it and it's got, got too much are they going to change their inflation target are they going to keep it where it is you know how aggressive are they going to respond. And how does it interact with fiscal policy, and you know what's going on globally, and all the other things that affect inflation in the economy, and, and, and cause the Fed to have to respond? So I think the question is, what is the Fed's real kind of reaction function right now? And the market has a different view of what, from what the Fed has officially been saying when they you know speak publicly.
0: Okay. So then in a sense, is this widening gap maybe not as bad? It's saying that the market expects inflation and economic growth to come down then. So it's basically saying they have faith in the Fed's ability to get us there?
1: Yeah. No, the market definitely expects the inflation rate to come down and the the economy to slow and that what the Fed is doing to, to have an effect. If you really thought that the Fed was not going to be effective in bringing down rates and you thought inflation would stay high, you certainly wouldn't be interested in buying a 10 year bond at 4% or less. So if you really believe that there was going to be a big, you know, kind of 70s style inflation, you know, spiral, then you would not be seeing uh, long term rates do what they're doing. So I think people are looking at it as the Fed will eventually be effective. It may take a little longer than we had hoped, but that will work and at the longer term structural drivers of inflation in the economy in terms of you know population and productivity growth and things like that are still tilted toward lower inflation lower growth they're not like the 70s and 60s and you know and even the early 80s when conditions were very different from that standpoint. And so that the, you know, kind of the pre-COVID conditions that we're got used to will eventually come back, assuming no major world crises. And then it's just a question of how long it takes to get there and what policy, you know, levers have to be pulled to get there, but that they, they will, you know, get there in the next, say, 12 months or maybe 18. And that's why the yield curve is, is priced that way. But it also reflects the volatility of the economic data, that it's just hard to get a clear read. And therefore, there's more distortions in the bond market than than usual, more volatility than usual.
2: Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
3: Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like chat GPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions. Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com.
2: That's M-E-Y-K-A dot com. carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show.
0: And there's been research that shows stocks don't typically bottom until the yield curve turns positive again, and it doesn't bottom until later in the Fed tightening cycle. And so What's happening? Could that be different this time? Could we, like you mentioned, see stocks bottom without that positive inversion?
1: Yeah, I definitely think it's possible. I think, yeah, I mean, you're right that there's a tendency for that, the yield curve to lead in that way, but it's also, there's a lot of variation in the historical tendencies that way. And I think in this case, the fact that nominal growth is still fairly high, and the fact that fiscal policy is still relatively supportive compared to you know historical tendencies that you've got the fed tightening in some sense and fiscal policy still you know being somewhat supportive That they're kind of offsetting each other uh, rather than both being pointed in kind of the tightening or the negative direction, which has been the case a lot of times in the past that you've seen is that you you see monetary policy tightening and potentially over tightening, uh, which is what an inverted yield curve tells you. The market thinks the Fed is overdoing it and fiscal policy at the same time, you know, cutting the deficit, cutting spending, all those things happening alongside tighter policy. And that's not happening now. Now, it could. But. Right now, it's looking like um, the fiscal support that we saw from COVID is kind of still lingering around. And the other things, infrastructure bills and some other spending things that are going on at the federal level are still, you know, being supportive and keeping the, uh, you know, that one of the metrics you can look at is the federal treasury deficit, deficit to GDP ratio. It's kind of how much is the government spending relative to GDP? And that's still on the higher side. It's, it's way, way below where it wasn't during COVID, of course, but it's, it's still on the higher side relative to history outside of crises. And so I think that's helping to balance out kind of what the Fed is doing and will help mean that the the inverted yield curve won't have the same negative economic implications, at least not right away, as the uh, history might suggest. And that if earnings hold up, And if the banking system holds up because the other problem with an inverted yield curve is that it causes you know problem for banks if they're lending at lower rates and they have to pay on deposits then that's you know that's negative for them they start to lose money but for the most part they still have they can still lend money profitably and they have good balance sheets again certain exceptions for those lending to the you know technology or crypto side of things but the major banks are still in good shape uh they're not a problem And so the yield curve is not going to bring the banking system, you know, down and is also, like I say, probably being offset to some degree by fiscal policy. And so I think all those things together mean the yield curve doesn't mean what it meant, you know, in the past.
0: One thing I want to touch on with you before we jump into the uh, stock side of things is inflation, because I've also had a range of views on what the inflation picture might look ahead. So you talked about what the market's expecting. What are you expecting? Do you think that we're going to get back to this target nice and easy? Or do you think we could potentially see waves of inflation?
1: Yeah, it's definitely going to be you know a little bit of a, of a bumpy road as it's been for a while. Certainly, at least judging by the you know the published data, my guess is that you know, inflation will work its way lower. And certainly by the end of this year, it will be substantially lower than it is now. And now some of that is sort of mechanical in the sense that you know the way you know housing prices are incorporated into the CPI and things like that. There are known lags in the way they calculate it and things like that. But I think even the underlying inflation pressures will moderate partly because you know income growth will slow and you know the, the labor market will, come, will get a little bit more balanced you know companies are already starting to kind of cut costs and consider their their uh, how many employees they need and what they're paying them and that sort of thing relative to say you know 21 and 22 where there was a lot of hiring going on and so i think the the overall picture for inflation is going to get back to you know closer to normal um and, and you even see that in commodity prices which are the most sensitive and the most easy to measure kind of you know measure of inflation they haven't shown any signs. They peaked, um, you know, last June, and have really been kind of trending low, flat to lower ever since, and are you know the lowest they've been in a year or so. So you know, energy prices, food prices, you know, other commodity prices, they're up and down, but they they're generally trending kind of flat to lower. And so I think the prices of goods, things you buy at the store, are you know kind of being flat to lower already. It's really services and, and labor things that are where the source of the inflation really is, and I think that's going to moderate over the next say six to twelve months. And then you know, certainly the Fed being tightened, the housing market slowing down; those are all things that will have an impact on the data over the next say six to twelve months. So I don't see any big driver for why you would get a new sustained wave in inflation, unless there's a big supply shock again from you know wars or you know pandemics or. Something else that would be that really disrupt the ability of the economy to supply things like we've seen the last few years. So I'm certainly h- hoping that's not the case. But we've dealt with those, I think, to some degree already. And I think there's a better chance that those get better rather than worse.
0: Okay, that was super helpful to hear. I want to jump back to the conversation on earnings revisions, because I know your specialty at Mill Street Research is looking at these analyst earnings revisions. And I guess given the concerns in the market about a possible economic slowdown recession, what have we been seeing so far on this for the year for revisions to these estimates?
1: That's right. Yeah. As I kind of alluded to earlier, um, the estimate revisions, so the you know, the changes to the estimates we've been seeing for months now have been quite negative. There's been a lot more estimates being cut than raised across the whole spectrum of US stocks and and globally. And that's been, you know, one of the drivers of the negative returns we saw last year and kind of drove a lot of the worries coming into this year. But what we've actually seen just in the last say month or two is that the pace of estimate cuts has really eased. And particularly for the large caps stocks in the U.S., where there was a lot of the the really the worries, whether it's the big cap tech stocks or some of the you know other more cyclical names, those have seen much less negative revisions. And actually, the technology sector in my work—if you just look at all the stocks in the whole you know tech sector across the board, not just the few mega caps—they're actually sl- turning slightly positive, which is you know the first time that we've started to really see anything you know kind of a a green side of things rather than all red. And so it, and we've also seen, you know, better readings on some of the other more cyclical industries and, you know, industrials or consumer discretionary things that are uh, more sensitive to the economy. So that tells me that, you know, a lot of the cuts that happened have, have already brought out estimates down far enough and that there may be you know, some signs that they're at least going to stabilize. Or maybe you move a little bit higher for a little while, and again, all you really need is to see the cuts stop, or at least slow way down, to at least let the, the market catch its breath and stabilize and do a little bit better. And that's kind of what we've seen, I think, you know, this uh, this year. And so, you know, I'm looking at it both from the standpoint of overall revisions, just kind of which direction they're going, and they're getting you know less bad, less negative, and then which sectors are the ones that are you know driving things. Is it you know is it really is it like utilities and consumer staples and the the defensive side of the, of the economy? That you expect to do well in, in bad times, or is it the cyclical side? You know that are more levered to global growth or to you know economic activity, and that's more where we're seeing the strength. And then we even want to look globally. We say that you know the estimate activity in Europe is actually stronger than it is in the U.S., which has been unusual. It's generally been the U.S. has been much stronger than Europe for years. We're actually seeing, and, and Europe is more cyclical and less tied to technology. That's been, you know, a sign of strength. Even though everyone was assuming that Europe would be in deep recession by now because of the war in Russia, in Ukraine, and everything else, uh, that hasn't happened. And China started to recover from COVID and everything they've been going through. So a lot of things that people assumed would be much worse right now have been less bad, whether it's you know U.S. or Europe or China. And I think you're starting to see that in the earnings and revisions data as well.
0: Okay, yeah, that was something that I was quite surprised about was the Europe picture and how it is held up way better than expected. And I guess on these revisions, do you tend to focus on the quarterly revisions more or the full year? What does your approach focus on more?
1: Uh, it's a great question and and there's a lot of people who do things differently. So my focus is very much on what I call the you know, year ahead, next twelve month estimates. So I'm always wanting to look at sort of those slightly longer term. And have a fixed, you know, kind of time window that I'm looking at for what the analysts are doing. So I'm looking at their annual forecasts for this year, 2023 and 2024, and then coming up with a kind of a rolling estimate of what the next 12 months looks like from the analyst standpoint in terms of earnings forecasts. I really don't focus much on the individual current quarter estimates because those can be very noisy and can be sort of gained a little bit. Meaning that the, est- the estimates are, are brought down to a level intentionally so that they, the companies can beat them for the current quarter, because, you know, that's how analysts you know maintain the relationship with their corporate managements and all kinds of things like that. And so uh, the current quarter numbers are not always necessarily a reliable metric of what's going on on a you know, slightly longer term basis or what they really think. You know, it will play a part in the, the year ahead number you know, the current quarter is obviously part of that. But if they're just kind of tweaking their current quarter numbers, but they're not moving their full year numbers, then that tells you that, you know, that you really need to focus on the, you know, the 12 month numbers to get a clearer picture of what the real fundamental drivers are and what's happening. So I'm always looking at the year ahead numbers and looking at, you know, kind of the, the ups and downs of that, which tend to be more stable and more predictive of, of relative returns for stocks, I found.
0: Right. Because I was reading all the reports on FactSet in preparation for this interview, and I saw that for Q1 of this year, the estimates were, they lowered estimates higher than normal, but that is a more volatile picture than you're saying. So that doesn't really drive your investment process or anything as much as the full year.
1: That's right. That's right. Yeah. Focus mostly on the full year numbers. And I look at the FactSet data like that as well. And, you know, what they're saying is true. The estimates have come down more than usual in Q1, but in some degrees, like say, you then expect the numbers to beat that by a certain amount. So they'll be down less than what the current consensus calls for, just because the way the analysts kind of play that game. And to some degree, that was priced in and the negativity we saw, you know, in November, December last year. And then the kind of investors and analysts saw that coming a little bit and, you know, could anticipate that and price it in. So it's really more about what are they doing to their second quarter, third quarter, fourth quarter numbers? You know or 2024 numbers looking ahead it's really going to drive you know if i'm making an investment today i'm not basing it on what q1 numbers are going to be or what q4 numbers you know were last quarter i'm basing it on looking ahead a little further than that and those trends are actually looking a bit a bit better now in my work and so um I think that's more relevant for, for looking kind of stock return forecasting, as opposed to kind of explaining what happened you know, over the last quarter and what analysts have done. It's like, what are they likely to be doing in the near term and for the future?
0: Right. So let's dive a little bit into your strategy now. How do you use this approach of estimating what analysts will do in the future and previous estimates of earnings or visions to inform your investment process?
1: Sure. So um for the most part, I look at earnings estimate revisions on a kind of a relative basis, meaning uh whether it's across countries and regions or across sectors and industries or across stocks themselves, I'm basically looking to see where are the strongest earnings estimate revisions, where are analysts raising their numbers most convincingly, and where are they cutting their estimates most convincingly? And, you know, finding where those, you know, kind of groups are, where are the strong areas, where are the weak areas and and then focusing you know, the attention on the strong areas and avoiding the weak areas. Because my research really corroborates the idea that on average over time, the stocks or the industries that have the strongest earning decimal revisions and then are then corroborated with the price momentum or the valuations that would support that tend to outperform the areas that have the weakest revisions. And so I'm looking for situations where the earnings estimates are going up and the price of the stock, the relative returns, favorable meaning that the market is responding to those earnings estimates and the valuations are are favorable meaning they haven't already priced in all the good news and so those three components are what drive my stock selection process but also then kind of rolled up into the industries or the sectors or even the countries and regions that can all be kind of aggregated up and so depending on whether i'm talking to a client who does more kind of big picture asset allocation or a client that does you know stock selection i can kind of focus on the areas that are relevant in that way but applying the same process basically across the board to look for areas of of relative strength and weakness And then i have other tools that i use for kind of asset allocation do i want to be in stocks or do i want to be in bonds or things like that kind of where you are in the cycle and you know kind of what risk appetite is things like that so there's kind of two big parts to the puzzle but the earnings estimate revisions are really for relative selection within the equity universe
0: so you mentioned three things that you look for there, and I'm super curious on the third thing that you mentioned on how you look for companies that haven't priced in those expectations. What information are you using? How are you finding this out?
1: Right. So for for valuation, what I'm really looking at is the you know the the, the PE ratio based on the forward 12 month estimates that I mentioned. So you know what are analysts forecasting over the next 12 months, and what is the you know, valuation being assigned based on that but also look at that not just by itself but relative to what the stocks any particular stocks own historical range is so some stocks always trade at higher multiples and some stocks tend to always trade at lower multiples because of the industry they're in or the way their accounting works or whatever the case may be so accounting for what's typical or what's normal for a particular stock or an industry is important to kind of scale or, or you know adapt What you think a high or a low price earnings ratio might be. And so I think, you know, the key is to look for again on a relative basis. Is this, you know, multiple very high or very low relative to other companies or relative to its own historical kind of norms? And so if you find a stock where their earnings revisions are rising and the price momentum is positive and the valuation is maybe on the lower end of its historical range, then that's a favorable setup. That means that investors haven't already kind of assumed that the estimates will rise and price it all in and that you can buy it at a reasonable price. Um, so it's really more about avoiding the kind of the risks that come with buying very expensive stocks, even if they look like the you know, their estimates are going up. Sometimes that's you know that's been priced in, People have already kind of paid for that. And so you want to find stocks where that's not the case. And so, um, so I, I look for that as kind of the, uh, the check against, you know, that if there's strong revisions and strong price momentum, you, you want to make sure you're not overpaying and, and buying something with, with an extremely high, you know, PE ratio, uh, that it's safer to buy stocks with, with lower valuations. And that's how that kind of fits into the overall puzzle. So I'm not, you know, trying to say I'm a valuation expert and then I know every company's, you know, ins and outs and they're uh, all the details. But you know, on average, you do better owning cheaper stocks and more expensive ones, and particularly when you've aligned it with their earnings estimates and their their price momentum.
0: And I guess in terms of the current P versus the forward, so you're looking for a current P that is lower than its historical range or relative to its competitors. And then the forward P, are you looking for it to be lower than the current P?
1: Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Ideally, right, because that would imply that the earnings you know, that are forecasted for the future would be higher than the earnings currently. So yeah, that's really typically an you know, ideal scenario. And certainly anything that's a sort of a growth stock would that would be, the, be expected is that the, the trailing PE would be higher than the forward PE. Now, it isn't necessarily required that that be the case in my process to be a favorable stock, even stocks that have negative earnings, can still be you know favorable to some degree if their earnings estimates are rising, meaning if their earnings are becoming less negative or maybe in the process of turning positive. But on average, you'd prefer to see positive earnings and growing earnings as long as they're not priced you know too high, the PE is not excessive, then that's the most favorable scenario is positive earnings that are rising, price momentum is supportive, and a forward PE that's relatively low. Is
0: this kind of a reversion to the mean strategy in a sense?
1: Well, the valuation component very much is. And because the other components, the, the earnings estimate revisions, and the price momentum are momentum or kind of trend following components, it's good to have a, a balance that you have, you know, some components of the, the process that I follow is sort of trend following mean, you want to go with the stocks that are doing well, and they have strong fundamental momentum and strong earnings or price momentum. But you also don't want to get stocks that are too expensive, or that are likely to revert to the mean and evaluation standpoint. So that's what the valuation does for you. Is it avoids? It lets you have some of that mean reversion, or you know, stocks that are cheap and maybe likely to re-rate higher as, as a tailwind as well. In addition to improving fundamentals. So, you know, you have to kind of balance the tendency to get to, you know, that too much momentum kind of process will, will push you to stocks that are expensive. Too much emphasis on value or mean reversion means that you can get caught in kind of the value trap where stocks are cheap, but they just stay cheap because something's wrong with them and they're not improving. They're getting worse. And therefore you don't ever really make that. You don't ever see the mean reversion. And so, like, say the ideal scenario is if it's relatively cheap but things are improving. There's a catalyst, something to drive the, the multiple to go up. That's when you get the best results typically. And so you can, you know, it's hard to find that all the time, but when you do, that usually tends to be the best uh,
2: setup. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
3: Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. That's netsuite.com slash MI. All
2: right, back to the show.
0: And I wanted to ask you about the accuracy of analysts' earnings estimates and these forward guidance, because my hunch would be that they tend to be overly optimistic. Is there any data to confirm or dispute that?
1: Well, you're right. Uh, there is tendency on average for analysts for their you know longer term forecast looking at a year or two to be somewhat optimistic. You know their estimates are, are higher than what actually transpires. now it's, it's kind of the opposite for the current quarter. Where they actually tend to lowball the estimates a little bit so because they, they want the the company to beat them. So it, it kind of it's, it's sort of a shift when they have a, a long-term estimate. they tend to be optimistic. but as you get closer to the current time and reality, Actually, tend to kind of shift to to letting the, lowering the bar far enough for the company to to hop over it. So there is a, a kind of a pattern to that on average. But I guess what I'm what's important to me is not the level of their forecast. Meaning, if they're too optimistic on average, that's actually it doesn't matter. What matters is the direction, the change, and so that's why the revisions to the estimate are, are really the driver. If they were expecting one number and now they expect slightly more, that's the important part. And if they're cutting their estimates from whatever level it was, that directional movement and the magnitude of it is what's important. So in some ways, I don't really care if they're too optimistic or not. It's whether if there's news comes out and they raise their estimates for whatever reason, that's incrementally positive news. And that's going to probably drive the stock price higher rather than lower. And that's what I'm looking for. And the fact that they tend to be kind of predictable or persistent, once they start raising their estimates in one direction, they actually tend to keep going for months at a time in some cases. And so once I see that there's a lot of estimates going up in the stock or this industry, then I know there's a good chance they'll probably keep doing that for a few more months. And when they do, stock prices will respond to that because that's what they've historically done. And you know, investors respond to estimates. And so that's the kind of how you use estimate changes and analyst behavior, you know, to your in your favor to take advantage of that to make it somewhat predictable for stock returns. And so we find that the stocks that have the biggest upward revisions tend to outperform those with the most negative revisions without really concerning yourself too much with the level of the estimates because those kind of wash out over time. But it's the direction that matters for the say the next three to six months.
0: Right. And I guess how long does it typically take stock prices to incorporate that information? And how quickly would you see that positive gain in the stock price following an analyst revision?
1: Right, right. So it, it can take, you know, sometimes you know, weeks or months for the kind of the news to really filter through. And because these analysts tend to kind of move incrementally and and as a herd, you know, one analyst will raise numbers and then later another one might, and they you know, they might kind of follow on each other for a while. And each time that happens, you'll get some impact on the stock price. So you'll get this kind of, you know, persistent impact kind of, you know, over time as the, the news kind of filters through and the analysts respond to it. Maybe the company updates its guidance. And there's also tends to be kind of there's momentum in the actual businesses of, of the companies. If a company comes out with a new product or service and it turns out well, it's not going to just be something that happens in one quarter and then goes away. You know, they'll probably have, you know, good, good trends in their sales and their earnings for a little while. And so it may take a little while for analysts or even the company itself to catch up to that and to sort of, you know, fully incorporate the news that uh, that their new product or service or whatever it is has caused. And the same is true on the downside. If things start to go wrong, they tend to kind of maybe keep going wrong for a while longer. And so it takes time for those things to play out both in the market and for analysts And so you can see, you know, three, six, sometimes, you know, months or a year before that trend really, you know, plays itself out. And so I think that's one thing people maybe misunderstand is they assume, well, some news comes out today, stock goes up, analysts have raised their numbers, it's all over, everything's, you know, already accounted for. And actually, in reality, there's a good chance it will continue uh, for a little while longer. Uh, That kind of post, uh, you know, post earnings announcement drift or the uh, kind of the, the trend Will actually persist for for weeks and months sometimes, but it, can, it will get you know that'll get overlooked once the news of the day is over. So um, that's what you're, you're kind of taking advantage of and using this kind of strategy.
0: And then, are you focusing on the revisions to earnings per share, or do you also focus on the revenue growth and margins? If even earnings per share doesn't perform as good as the other two.
1: Right. So most of the work that I do is focused on you know, earnings per share estimates, kind of the more bottom line number. There are certainly estimates for, you know, sales or uh dividends or book value or you know other measures from the income statement or the balance sheet. Now, there's one thing is that analysts, when you look at what analysts actually forecast, what they publish and submit, you know, to their earnings estimate services, the most commonly estimated item is earnings per share. So that's where the most, you know, kind of estimates are and they you know, the, mo- the, the the highest quality or kind of depth. Of earnings estimates. The other thing is that when they raise their forecast for earnings, they're almost always going to be also raising their earnings, their forecast for revenues and for margins, or even if margins stay the same. So if you're looking at, again, the direction they're moving, it's very rare to see them raise their earnings, but lower their sales numbers or vice versa. So if you know which way your earnings are going, you pretty much kind of know which direction the other items are going, No, you know, whether it's exactly the same amount percentage wise. Yeah, that'll vary. But if I want to know just directionally which way things are moving, the earnings estimates will generally get you in the right right direction. And then you can go and then look more closely at, you know, what's going on within the margins or the other other measures to see if there's, you know, a more complete story to tell there. And so we can do that for clients as well, look look more in depth and certainly clients, you know, that, that are, a lot of my clients are, you know, professional money managers, they're institutional investors, and they're doing their own research, and they might be doing that themselves. But, you know, I can help them narrow down the list of say, okay, here are the stocks where the estimates are rising and things look fundamentally good and have good support from the price and the valuation. So, you know, maybe go and do your research here and don't bother with the ones that are look weaker right now. And so I'm not going to be at the end of the story, but, you know, give them uh, a good pond to fish in in some ways or uh, a directional uh, indication of which way, you know, things are looking for a company. Basically, if you get the EPS numbers kind of moving the right direction, the other things tend to follow along.
0: I really like this strategy. It helps narrow down. It's It's a screening process essentially from top down on to help you find great companies. And so I guess I'm wondering on a sector level, now that we know your checklist, what you look for what are some sectors that have the best prospects for you after we just saw some revisions come out from analysts recently?
1: Yeah, so right now, uh, when I look through it, I see that uh, I like think I mentioned you know, technology. It's actually surprisingly strong, but you kind of have to take out the, the, the mega caps, the, you know, the apples and Microsofts and things that have a huge amount of weight in the technology related indices, but that the average kind of technology stock is actually doing relatively well on an estimate revisions basis. Um, we're also seeing relative strength in uh, like the industrial sector, certainly transportation related stocks, you know, airlines and things like that are holding up fairly well. Um, you're starting to see some of the uh, consumer discretionary stocks hold up relatively well. Uh, whether it be you know retail or some of the other areas, and there's been uh, certain parts of the financial sector that have been holding up better uh, when the stock markets and things do better than the things like capital markets and insurance have been relatively good. Now the banking sector, the banking industry, has been. Weakening actually in my work for a couple months now, and is having some troubles lately. But other parts of the financial sector are, are have been doing well, and so when I look overall, I'm seeing generally, you know, those kind of more cyclical parts of the economy, you know, doing fairly well. And at the bottom of the list, you know, you still see kind of real estate, which is you know under pressure both from kind of post COVID people not going to the office anymore. Or higher interest rates because they're very interest sensitive. Some utilities, some healthcare, some consumer staples. Those are kind of the areas that look relatively weakest on earnings revisions and and the, the overall kind of scores and, and rankings that I look at. So you know if I'm looking at it overall, I'm saying the more cyclical areas, the areas that are benefiting from a strong job market and that uh, are either less interest sensitive or that are benefiting from lower energy costs. So oil prices have been coming down. Gasoline prices coming down. Natural gas prices have come way down. So all the industries that they use that, and that's a fuel cost or an input cost, they're actually benefiting. And same thing with consumers not having to pay as much to fill up their tank. All those things help the earnings for energy users, but are hurting their earnings forecast for oil producers. So they've been starting to weaken the last few months. So the, the kind of rotation from energy producers to energy users... And companies that are very interest sensitive have been under pressure. Ones that are less so have been doing better. And that the the job market growth, the re, you know retail spending's holding up, that's all coming through in the in the earnings for stocks and industries that are sensitive to that.
0: And then from there, once you've identified all those sectors, you go in and look at the list of companies, and that's where the valuations come in. And you kind of can filter through those and mm-hmm. do that. That is the second, I guess, step in this process.
1: Right. Right. Exactly. If you take kind of a top down starting point, you, you look at the kind of big, broad sectors, kind of which parts of the economy and the market you want to be in. then you can drill down into specific industries. Or do I want to be in software or semiconductors or, you know, insurance or banks? And then you can drill down in individual companies because within any, any sector industry, there's always a wide range of companies some doing better and some doing worse. And so you can then filter in and say, okay, here are the specific names that have strong revisions and their price momentum is you know relatively strong and their valuations are relatively favorable. And therefore they're more likely to outperform even within that specific industry Versus stocks that are that are weaker within that industry, and so again, depending on how the you know the investor or the client is looking at this is, is set up, they might focus very you know much on the individual names within one specific or a few specific industries, or they might look at the whole broad universe of U.S. stocks and say, you know, I don't really care what sector it's in. Just give me the strongest individual companies uh, that have you know strong you know products and services and uh, and have you know the, the most aggressively rising estimates and focus on those. So you can kind of slice and dice it however you like and do it by you know by sector or. Even by you know by size you can look at small caps and large caps or by style you know growth stocks and value stocks um so i can kind of carve up the the whole list of stocks however someone might want but the general principle is the same you want the strongest stocks ideally in the strongest industries give you the most kind of uh tailwinds behind you to kind of use the sailing analogy to be able to find the the strongest names things that are most likely to outperform
0: so you mentioned this is kind of a momentum trade in a sense or one part of it is based on momentum so how long are you typically holding these securities for and i guess what would the catalyst be to cause you to sell it then would it be a downward momentum
1: right that's very much the the, the principle behind a lot of this is the kind of momentum and looking for alignment between what i call fundamental momentum the earnings estimates price momentum and then you know valuation is kind of the uh, counter uh, to that and so most momentum oriented kind of equity strategies tend to be oriented in kind of anywhere from one to six months in some cases the the trends in these stocks will go on for longer than that you can see strong momentum for a year or two there's certainly example, plenty of examples of that of you know growth stocks that just kind of keep outperforming keep surprising it's not the majority but there are certainly those names that, that show up like that but i would say kind of you know three to six months is, is typical Uh, sometimes you know nine months or a year now to be clear you know mill street research does not manage money so i am not actually trading any of these stocks but the investors that that use it and um uh, the way that the models and the rankings tend to sort of turn over is that kind of you know intermediate term you know three to six to maybe nine month uh kind of horizon these trends play out on
0: the last question i want to ask you for today is your longer term outlook for the market because I heard you talk about previously how in a longer term model, when looking at, I guess, this extended time horizon, the expectation is that real earnings growth is expected to be about zero over the next 10 to 20 years, whereas in the past, it was more around 4%. So is this something that you're still expecting or could you paint some color on this? Because if earnings growth is expected to be zero, what does that potentially mean for longer term stock price appreciation?
1: Oh, that's right. That's right. So, I do have a, another indicator that I look at that basically tries to answer the question what is the market pricing in right now in terms of long run, real, meaning after inflation, growth expectations for earnings? So, it's answering the question, you know, what is the market thinking? What is it pricing in? And then, of course, you have to compare that to, you know, what I think or what you think about what's really likely to happen. And so in some ways it's a, you know, it's a measure of what investors are doing or saying right now. And then looking for situations where, you know, if everyone is very pessimistic and expecting very low growth, then you know any kind of good news or upside would, would be favorable for stocks. The stocks, you know, participate in long-run growth and, and bonds don't. Whereas if everyone is ex- already expecting very high growth and they're already very optimistic and think things are going to be great, then it wouldn't take much disappointment for stocks to kind of underperform and, and get knocked down. And so right now, Or for for several months now, the model that that I use for that has been showing that based on you know current earnings and inflation and stock prices and bond yields that you know it only take it wouldn't take any you know about zero real growth or just slightly marginally positive real growth to make you know you kind of indifferent between stocks and bonds that you know zero real growth would kind of make the outlook for stocks and their outlook for corporate bonds roughly equal on kind of on a 10 to 20 year basis. And that seems pretty low to me, meaning that if the real earnings growth in the U.S. has tended to average anywhere from two to four percent over long periods after inflation, the zero would be much worse than average. So you'd you'd have to assume that there'd be very little economic growth and that U.S. corporations would have no way of really growing earnings for a long time to make that a, you know, a reasonable or a, a good assumption. So to me, what it tells me is that, you know, expectations are very low. And that therefore, you know, you, doesn't take, you wouldn't have to be convinced of particularly much growth coming along the line for stocks to be attractive. As long as stocks will be better than what the market is pricing in, or if earnings growth is higher than expected, stocks tend to do better. They tend to rise, or at least do better than bonds, for, to say that. And so to me, this is sort of a sentiment indicator in some ways, saying that sentiment is still pretty pessimistic based on current uh, way things look right now. And therefore, there is potentially more upside than downside, GA expectations, as long as earnings growth is at least somewhat positive over the next 10 to 20 years, which I think it will be, I think earnings will still continue to grow, maybe not as fast as they have, but still positive. And therefore, stocks have a better chance of beating that hurdle than missing it.
0: Hey, that was very helpful. That was such an insightful conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on today and share all that knowledge with us. Before I let you go, though, where can our listeners go to learn more about you and then everything that you do at Mill Street?
1: Oh, sure. Well, no, thank you for having me on. And uh, so if you want to find out more, uh, millstreetresearch.com has a lot of information about the, the work and a sample sample reports and a lot of things on there. There's a blog where I update every once in a while that gives some background and information about what I do. There's also a uh, report that I put out every week now that maybe even individual investors might like. It basically a sort of a slice of what I do for the institutional investors that I deal with. Uh, and then it's called the weekly roundup and it's you know it's fifty dollars a month and so it gives you a way to track what i'm doing uh without having to kind of pay the rates that the institutions do that's on the website as well and then uh i've been you know posting on uh, twitter and linkedin uh reasonably often kind of just comment on what, what we're seeing, what i'm seeing in the markets and response to economic data and things like that and giving again just sort of snippets and slices of indicators that i look at so at mill street research on twitter same thing on, on LinkedIn. You can kind of keep keep an eye on that and see what uh, uh, kind of what things I'm talking about. And then anyone can reach out, you know, info at millstreetresearch.com is the email address if you want to write in and ask questions or see about the research.
0: Perfect. I will make sure to put all of those in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on today, Sam.
1: My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
0: All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Make sure to follow the show on your favorite podcast app so that you never miss a new episode. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, I would really appreciate it if you left a rating or review. This really helps support us and is the best way to help new people discover the show. And if you haven't already, make sure to sign up for our free newsletter. We Study Markets, which goes out daily and will help you understand what's going on in the markets in just a few minutes. So, with that all said, I will see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets.